The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, July 7th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So let me lay three Greek words on you. Chaos, catastrophe, democracy. If anything, the third word is often proffered as the bomb for the first two but not always, not in every arena. In describing the confusing referendum that resulted in a no vote and the chimerical mandate that Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras claimed, I talked about it yesterday, Al Jazeera ran an article. The headline of that article was, Tsipras is letting democracy decide. And at first I thought that was ridiculous because it's the opposite of truth. There was no decision being made. But then I realized it really was ridiculous because there are some things that democracy is ill-equipped to decide. And I have come to believe that matters of economics are in that category. Now, as an American, it seems elitist to doubt the wisdom, the transformative power of democracy, or at least our representative democracy. The problem, it is sometimes said, with representative democracy is that it's neither representative nor democratic. And I say that the problem is that other times it is. There are some things that the people, the tradesmen and the artisans and the merchants and the civil servants and the homeless and the farmers and the financiers and the brand managers and the students and the imagineers and the reality show star presidential candidates, the people, some things these people just can't decide. And it's not elitist to say it. It's not monarchical. We already know this. We don't ask the public to weigh in on what manner of rocket to use for our next mission to Mars, even though NASA is a public enterprise, because we know that's too complicated. And while we do roughly, and not always with full information, take the public's temperature on whether or not to go to war, we don't ask the public to render an opinion on which weapons We don't ask the public to render an opinion on which weapons to use during an individual battle or even what systems to acquire or how many aircraft carriers to build or what percentage of fixed-wing aircraft should comprise our Air Force because that's all too complicated. But when it comes to economic matters, we're always asking the public these questions, similarly complicated questions. We use as proxies economic issues that the public does understand, like the constant analogy of the household budget. But the issues are nothing alike. So economic policy is held hostage to moral notions like debts. Should debts be repaid or should creditors be blamed for bad lending? The notions have a little something to do with the decisions we make, but really a small thing overall in the economic picture, a picture that regular people just can't comprehend. They're far beyond what regular people, what regular voters can conceive. I actually have no solution to this. I just think that voters need to elect officials who they know are smart in areas that they do understand, like don't elect climate change deniers, don't elect people who think intelligent design should be taught alongside evolution in the schools, Elect people who are more forgiving instead of hard asses, unless you like hard asses, and then hope for the best economic results. Politicians have it in their interests to have good economies while they are in office. This helps them get reelected. You hope that short-term economic growth isn't at the cost of long-term growth, and you hope that everything works itself out. But the idea that democracy is equipped to answer questions of modern finance, I do not give that an iota, another Greek word, of credence.
On the show today, hey, I spiel more about economics, but this is a little more tangible, less ethereal. Women soccernomics, in fact. But first, it's cool, it's fresh, it's fly. It's the recently released film about a smart kid from the hood who gets tricked into holding a large parcel of drugs, realizes the situation is far from dope. Malcolm's a geek living in an Englewood, California neighborhood called The Bottoms, which explains his chances of getting out of the neighborhood. In the movie, he and his friends are obsessed with 90s hip-hop, which comes out as he sits down to discuss his application to Harvard. In this scene, he's defending a personal essay titled November 30th, 1988, A Research Thesis to Discover Ice Cube's Good Day. He's talking to his guidance counselor. Malcolm, when I see stuff like this personal essay... I think you're not taking the process seriously. I'm I'm taking it seriously, Mr. Bailey, I promise. I'm talking about something that I love. I mean, it's well-reasoned, supported with historical data. It shows creativity, critical thinking. If Neil deGrasse Tyson was writing about Ice Cube, this is what it would look like. I suggest you go in a different direction. Write something personal about you, your family, your life. Yeah, I, I could write about the typical... I'm from a, a poor, crime-filled neighborhood, raised by a single mother, don't know my dad, blah, blah. It's cliche. Along with Pharrell Williams, Mimi Valdez is a co-producer of this film, Dope. And Mimi Valdez is here now. Hello, Mimi. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm well. I enjoyed the movie. I thought that it was a combination of things which could be good or bad so it's definitely the urban movie but it's definitely the outsider geeky teen comedy movie right Mm -hmm. like is that a good thing in terms of uh, selling it to the public or selling it to a studio or is that oh those two genres don't work together well i think for us we like you know at at i mother we like things that don't necessarily fit into a box so for us the projects seem like a really unique perspective and i think Lots of times in order to cut through a lot of the content that's out there, it's nice to have something that just feels completely different and not like anything you've ever seen. So I think the combination of the genres was was a good thing. Okay, let's back up. Tell me about I Am Mother. What are they? What's the relationship? Okay, so I Am Mother is Pharrell Williams's company. He calls it a creative collective. It's just sort of the umbrella company for all his different businesses. And I'm chief creative officer there. And... You know, he had done music, he had done fashion, movies was something he always wanted to get into. So we had been looking for a project for a while, and our agent at WME also represents Rick Famayiwa, and he brought this project to us before it was a script. It was just a lookbook, a couple images, this sort of idea. He told us, you know, nerds in the hood. Nerds in the hood. Trying to, you know, That's good. That's, a good, that's good to have that tagline, right? It's good to <laughs> have that one sentence. You know, and it's yeah. so funny because I don't even, I don't think he said that at the time, it was, but that was when he was explaining it to us. That's kind of what we got, that it was like nerds in the hood trying to navigate all the drama that goes on. And both Pharrell and I are both from, you know, I'm from the projects in New York City, Pharrell, you know, as well in, in, in Virginia from projects. And we didn't grow up with a lot of money, but we were the smart kids trying to figure out a way to like make a better life for ourselves and and our family so I think it spoke to us and we just told Rick like hey great you know idea we love it come back with a script so the writer-director Rick Famuyama what's his background he actually had done a couple of films he uh, did The Wood 
brown sugar and our family wedding. And it w- he was just someone that, again, like we just loved the idea. He's a brilliant writer. And eventually when he did send the script, we were really excited because we were like, wow, this is this has a lot of potential because it has these universal themes of not fitting in and fighting to sort of stay true to who you are. And we felt that regardless of where you came from, what color your skin was, how much money you had in the bank, that you could relate to that. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Malcolm Adekambi. I'm a straight A student with nearly perfect SAT scores. You probably got like one of them photogenic brains. <laughs> you mean photographic memory? What'd I just say? I mean, yeah, you, you said it. Yeah, reiterating. I play in a punk band with my friends. Now, whenever I hear interviews by, actually, this is something models always say, oh, I was a gawky teen. But whenever I hear interviews, usually with really hip people, they talk about how they were geeky. Now, not always. I mean, Jay-Z talks about how he had to be a drug dealer. But what, <laughs> what's the truth and what's the uh, self-perception of Pharrell Williams? Well, Does he think of himself as a geek? Of course. I mean, his, his group was called NERD, nerd. And for that reason, because he grew up not fitting in, you know, being the kid that, you know, people made fun of. And and he eventually found his calling in music and that ended up being his saving grace. But he wasn't the cool kid growing up. And if anything, he wanted to take the idea of a nerd and make that cool. The logo for NERD actually was done by Shepard Ferry, which is crazy when you think about that. But um, it was a brain. Way pre-Obama yeah, oh, and pre- Hope, and no of one course. knew who Yeah, no was. one knew yeah. who Shep- um, Shepard Ferry was, but he did a brain. And, and Pharrell's idea was it was, you know, he wanted to take the idea of a brain and make that look cool. So yes, he, even to this day, very much still feels like an outsider. Now, the main guys in the movie, Malcolm and his friends, they are into a certain era of hip hop. They love 90s 90s stuff. He's got the kid in play haircut. (laughs) Is this really a thing? Will you find people like this in the real world? No, definitely. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the former editor in chief of Vibe magazine. right? So I grew up, I grew up, um, you know, started as an editor assistant at Vibe, was there during the whole heyday of 90s hip hop. And I do see so many kids, you know, now today, like are obsessed with that era. And I think it was something that's been happening now for a couple of years because it really was the golden age of hip-hop. Yeah. You had so much diversity, so much amazing music, and not just in hip-hop, the 90s in general, grunge, like, you know, Kurt Cobain. It, like, there was so much, so many unique voices really kind of... Um, I don't know. It was just it was just an amazing era. And I think the reason why Rick wanted to focus on that era for the film, too, is that in some way it kind of mirrored the idea of uh, of the movie and these characters and that they weren't just, you know, what they were, you know, that individuality and staying true to right. yourself and perception versus reality. Just all these different themes that I think were so they existed a lot in, in that era and that music. I find that when people, when adults set uh, films in high school, they often do it as a period piece. And I think it's for a couple reasons. It's easier to write about the period Mm -hmm. you know and you don't want to get details wrong. But I also think, like with Freaks and Geeks, there is a way to appeal to a couple audiences at once. The kids who are that age now, so the age of the person on the screen, but also people who can remember back when they were in that period. So in that way, the relatability of a kid who's obsessed with 90s is a smart thing to depict, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the kids, you know, all the cast of the film, they they were great in terms of just really injecting themselves into these characters. So they made it feel really modern as well, too. I mean, I think they're just as responsible for just what that script feels like, you know, what that movie feels like. Because it was just like little things, whether it was like Kiersey, who plays Diggy, plays the lesbian girl. Like, I think there was a scene in there that with um, the beginning scene 
when she's at the church. And in the film, it says her grandmother wanted to pray away the gay. Yeah. That came from Kiersey because originally in the script was her mom. And she was like, you know what? That doesn't feel right to me. Right. I think her mom would be cool with her. It's probably her grandmother that has a problem. Right. And it was like, great, let's change it. So they added a lot of those types of little things to the film, all of them, that helped make it really young and contemporary. Yeah. Did you have input into how the movie was made or any plot elements or even musical choices? Originally, Rick wanted Pharrell to do the music for the band and the group. That was originally the the first sort of conversation we had. And then, you know. Because we should say the kids have a punk band. And they're pretty accomplished musicians. (laughs) Yes. Or at least they're depicted as such. They they are. The the kids have a band called Oreo. Yeah. Sort of a punk hip hop band. And Pharrell did four songs for it. He had no idea what this music was going to sound like when he approached us. He was like, you know, I, these are the kids. This is who they are. You know, you know, I kind of feel like it should be a little similar to NERD, but, you know, whatever you guys think. And then Farrell and I just sort of sat and really kind of talked about, like, all right, you know, what would this be like? What should it sound like? What, what, what should the lyrics be? These are who these characters are. And then, you know, he went and created these demos. And then when we got in the studio, it was like, all right, let's see if these kids could deliver <laughs> on this. And they did. They were amazing. Yeah. So amazing. Like, the three of them, even Tony, who, you know, I had found out just by going online, because kids do everything these days, right? So I was like, gosh, I hope they could sing. Found out Shamit could sing. Found out Kiersey could sing. Just by stuff they had uploaded to YouTube and SoundCloud. Tony, I couldn't find anything on, but I was less worried about him. But he turned out that he was in a band as well, too, and he plays bass. So Wow. They remind me a little of Rage, the, Rage Against the Machine, their sound. Yeah. Well, it's more N.E.R.D., but yeah. it has it has that. It has yeah, that yeah. Rage Against the Machine. It has, like, hip-hop. It has all these different right. elements. I mean, I think It has a little song, living color. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, it just has, I think, the angst of teenagers and kind of what they go through and, and again, that feeling of just not fitting in. I think in Malcolm's songs, he is able to become the person he aspires to be, you know, like a lot of the things that he says in the song, he wouldn't say out loud, but, yeah. you know, it's it's yeah, sort yeah. of the... the tougher persona. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, Pharrell Williams, that happened to him. Who knows? <laughs> Mimi Valdez is a co-producer of the new film, Dope. Thank you so much. She makes me think of lightning and skies. She's sexy. How else is God supposed to If you've seen the movie or just would like to have the plot spoiled for you, make sure to check out Slate's spoiler special on Dope featuring Slate film critic Dana Stevens and the three hosts of Panoply's About Race podcast. Go to slate.com slash podcasts or search for spoiler special in your favorite podcast app. And now the spiel, I believe that you will be underpaid. It didn't take long for the joy of the U.S. winning the World Cup in women's soccer to turn into a serious question. It didn't take longer, for instance, than it took for Telemundo announcer Andres Cantor to announce Carly Lloyd's glorious third goal. Regalo. 
Carlin Lloyd desde la mitad de la cancha. ¡Viene, viene! ¡Gol! ¡Gol! So as we let that excitement wash over us, and don't worry, it'll last. The call lasts 38 seconds. Let us consider the complaint that arose the next day. The U.S. women as a team received $2 million for winning the World Cup. Now the Germans, who won the Men's World Cup, won $35 million. In fact, to quote the website Ultraviolet, which brands itself as equality at a higher frequency... The U.S. women's soccer team made history after winning the World Cup for the third time. The prize, $2 million, not bad until you learn the U.S. men's team earned $8 million for losing in the first round. Now, the U.S. men's team didn't lose in the first round, but yeah, that would be the take for a team in the men's tournament that exited in the first round. Ultraviolet asks people to sign a petition over at moveon.org to ask FIFA to change its ways. Now, there is a reason that there is no phrase, yeah, that and a moveon.org petition will get you a ride on the subway. But still, let's examine the sentiment. The target of the petition is FIFA. Now, I follow a lot of people on Twitter. A lot have been tweeting, hey, sign the petition. One of the people I follow on Twitter is Sepp Blatter, president of FIFA. He has not said that he will sign the petition. But I want to point out a couple things. And let me begin with, yeah, I do think women should be paid more, not because the men are paid a lot more by FIFA than the women. That doesn't have much to do with it. It's because FIFA, a nonprofit entity, shows a profit and loss statement of zero while making sure that everyone on their executive committee gets to brush their teeth with shrimp and scratch their tuchuses with Egyptian cotton. The 23 men and one woman on the executive committee, live luxurious lives funded by FIFA, funded by the soccer-obsessed peoples of the world. Add to the fact that that's only the legal stuff. FIFA officials are, of course, currently under indictment. They make and take bribes outside the rules. And layer on to that the fact that FIFA makes so much money and simply stuffs it inside its Swiss headquarters. Yeah, it's hard to think that there isn't more money to go around. How much more? Well, nothing that will come close to closing the 17.5 to 1 disparity between the men's and the women's take, and here's why. The women just simply do not generate as much money as the men. Let's talk about live gate. In the matches in Brazil, where the men's World Cup were held, 53,000 people on average attended. The women's tournament, it was 26,000 who attended. There are more matches in the men's tournament and the ticket price is higher. That's only a small fraction of it. TV ratings are the big thing. So maybe you've been hearing that the ratings were the highest ever for a U.S. soccer game. That is true in the U.S., but soccer is a global game. The ratings in Germany for U.S. versus Japan were paltry. The Women's World Cup did very well in England this time around. BBC Two was showing the games, and 2 million people were tuning in. Compare that to the men's games, where... 18 million people in England tuned in. Oh, and remember how I said it was the most watched soccer game in the U.S.? That is true. But if you add in Spanish language viewership, this game did not set the record by much. 26.7 million Americans watch Sunday's triumph. 26.5 million Americans watched the men's finals between Germany and Argentina. 
And also, ratings points don't seamlessly translate into revenue. Ads are sold before a tournament begins. They're sold against expectations. So it seems that advertisers definitely got a good value for their ad buys. But so much of the analysis of what the women are owed is based on the popularity of the U.S. women, the popularity they're experiencing having won the World Cup. But the winners, no matter the country, are entitled to the prize pool. So if the United States had lost to Germany in the semifinals, which was a distinct possibility, it turned on a couple of questionable referee calls, we wouldn't have anything near a record in the finals. Does that mean that no one should make the argument that whoever won, be it Japan or Germany, should make $2 million? I don't know. The number one reason the big TV ratings in the U.S. being offered for the $2 million would evaporate. Another reason why the men are paid more is that FIFA has to incentivize them to play in the World Cup. For the women, this is the premier event in their sport. Is that fair? I don't know. It's capitalism. Sure, patriotism and competition would seduce most male players to play. But if the prize pool were paltry, as paltry as the women, I could see a Ronaldo or a Messi saying, this isn't even worth it to me. This is an insult. Let's talk about salaries. So Messi is the highest paid player in the world. His club team, Barcelona in Spain, La Liga, the top league, pays him $71 million a year. This means he makes about $20,000 a minute in the 38 games in La Liga pay. U.S. has a professional women's league. Players are paid between six and $30,000. Most are paid closer to six. This means that even a very good woman makes less in a season than Messi makes in a minute. You'd see why they'd have to pay players like Messi a little bit more. And let's say this, as much as I support equal pay for equal work, I do, the work isn't really equal. Well, wait a minute, wait, we're talking about 90 minutes of soccer and the biggest tournament in the world. So how can that not be equal? Yes, the sport is equal. The sport is the sport. But the work is actually the job of attracting eyeballs and ad dollars to the sport. And the women for a lot of reasons, don't do it as well as the men. Why sexism? Sure, people across the world aren't as into women's soccer as they are in the United States and as they are into men's soccer. But this means the economics just aren't there for justifying parity in pay. In 2011, the Women's World Cup brought in $5.8 million. In 2014, the Men's World Cup brought in $1.5 billion. It's about 250 times as much. So a 17 times pay premium for the victors is kind of in keeping with those numbers. So let's be joyous at the job the women did. Let's be hopeful about the prospects of a sustained pro league. Let's be optimistic about FIFA's ability to further monetize this event. Fox says it actually tripled those revenues from 2011 that I quoted. And let's realize that even if soccer's governing body is a bunch of sexist, indifferent, retrograde, largely corrupt oligarchs. They do know how to maximize revenue. And soon, the participants in the Women's World Cup will be seeing the benefit of that. How long will it take? Well, as with an Andres Cantor goal call, don't hold your breath. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is our producer. She's the only one here. She is therefore the sole producer. The guy who's our managing producer is a nice fellow by the name of Meyer. Who Meyer? Why? Joe!
Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. He's a leader. He's a visionary. Other than that, not a clearly defined role. The gist. Sorry if my faux Latino sports announcer efforts have taken their toll. I need to exhibit more quality control. And I'm only doing them in English because I am on Espanol Now more than ever, thanks for listening. Hi, this is James Ledbetter, editor of Inc. Magazine. If you're into anything at all related to technology, entrepreneurship, and cool companies, you should listen to our podcast, Inc. Uncensored, where we talk about, well, technology, entrepreneurship, and cool companies, as well as drones, robots, green funerals, latte art, and moon mining, along with just about anything else that hits the like button of the fine people who write for Inc. Magazine and Inc.com. You can subscribe to Inc. Uncensored on iTunes.com slash Panoply or on your favorite podcasting app.